This is The Capital Corner, a McGuire Woods podcast exploring investment strategies, capital structures, and topics relevant in today's middle market private equity. Join McGuire Woods partner Jeff Cockrell as he and specialists share practical insights to inform your deal work. Thank you for joining another episode of The Corner Series. I'm your host, Jeff Cockrell from McGuire Woods. Here at The Corner Series, we bring together thought leaders and deal makers in healthcare, private equity investing. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by two of my friends, uh, Hector Torres and Richard Bland from DC Advisory. We're going to talk about some of the market trends that we're seeing and some areas of interest from both investors and sellers. But Hector, maybe start us off and uh, introduce yourself and uh, DC Advisory, and then uh, Rich, if you could as well. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Hector Torres. I'm a managing director with Daiwa Corporate Advisory, which is the global investment banking arm of Daiwa Securities and, and Daiwa Financial. Um, I've spent my entire uh, nearly 20-year career uh, working on behalf and at the service of provider-based and healthcare services organizations to explore and, and execute on all forms of strategic transactions. DC Advisory is a global investment banking franchise and enterprise. Rich and I have the pr- pleasure of working together and leading all of the efforts that we cover in the United States across the full healthcare services continuum. So pleasure to be here. Great. And my name's Rich Bland, Managing Director with DC Advisory. And and thanks to Jeff and and the team for inviting us onto the podcast today. I've been in investment banking, primarily focused on mergers and acquisitions and capital raising for almost 25 years. Joined Hector and several other partners a little less than a year ago to establish and form the U.S. Healthcare Group for DC Advisory. I focus 100% of my time in the physician practice management space with a a heavy lean towards some of the more mature uh, consolidating sectors like dental and dermatology and vision, as well as, you know, the pleasure of partnering with Hector in some of the newer areas of consolidation where we're seeing M&A activity like med spa and cardiology and orthopedics. So, very excited to have the conversation today. This will be fun. Maybe Hector, starting with you. So we're a little over halfway through the year. The general vibe has been that uh, transaction volume has been materially, but not atrociously off of last year. What has the market looked like for M&A activity from your perspective? And then maybe uh, turning that lens forward, what do you anticipate now for the second half of the year? Yeah, yeah. Certainly agree with, with your initial sentiment that it has been relative to years past much lower volume and overall transaction activity, but but not atrocious, right? And I think the dynamic we're seeing is fairly consistent in it is a tale of two worlds. World A being, you know, transactions generally in the 300 million plus of enterprise value range have just really come to a, a significant halt in large part due to the disintermediation in the broader capital markets environment, but more specifically in the debt capital markets environment and the availability and and willingness of of lenders and and debt capital uh, to be deployed in support of those larger uh, size transactions. The other world and element we see is transactions below that $300 million enterprise value mark are still getting done, but with strict, some of the strictest levels of scrutiny that we've seen from a buyer diligence perspective, and then really just a focus on really delineating between the class A assets and organizations that have size, scale, 
are growing in a defensible and organic manner relative to the class B, C and below organizations. And the market's just become, like I said, very scrutinous in applying uh, valuation points of view and perspectives relative to A, B and C type of organizations. But what we would tell you is the class A organizations, those transactions and those companies are are being completed, right? The problem is that there's just not as many A plus assets that are less than 300 million as, as we all would like. And hence, I think that contributes a lot to the current transactional volume that we're seeing today. Rich, maybe if you want to add and then maybe give a perspective on how we see the year and, and 2024 evolving. Yeah, echo the sentiment. The back half of last year, you know, we started to pivot quite materially as broader economic challenges created a lot of headwinds with inflation, with Fed funds increasing, and then obviously a bit of a pause from the lender community to understand what the new norm is going to look like. And as we started to you know, crawl out of our shell, if you will, we got hit with uh, bank failures in Q1 that further delayed a market reset. I would say in the last maybe two months or so, there's been a renewed optimism and a return to funding deals. And what it's really done is it's given us the opportunity now to feel like we're in a much more normal environment with probably a little bit less volatility than what we saw nine, six, nine months ago. And when there's less volatility and more certainty around market conditions, it gives buyers and sellers and lenders an opportunity to, to feel like they, they're working through the traditional challenges of doing a deal but don't have to also wrestle with market conditions that are uh, creating headwinds as well. So long-winded way of saying the market activity has picked up materially in the last two months, but you know what we're expecting to see is almost a, a tsunami of opportunities coming out in late 2023 and early 2024 that's going to create a, a very robust M&A market for all types and classes of organizations and sizes as well, you know, as the credit markets have now loosened, we have a much clearer visibility towards the broader economic conditions and the potential of recession is mitigated. Even if it does happen, I think the general consensus is it won't be long and it won't be deep. And with that as the backdrop, people can get back to deploying capital, making investments, and narrowing the bid-ask spread uh, between buyers and sellers in this new regime. You mentioned the bid-ask spread, and in the sub-300 market that you were talking about, one of the recurring challenges that I hear buyers uh, articulate is that sellers have had a difficult time absorbing the valuation implications of higher cost of credit that that buyers are still going to have to model out cash flow and layering in three, four or more extra percentage points has an impact on valuation. And, and it's been difficult for, in particular, uh, take uh, physician provider uh, groups for them to internalize the idea that, well, you said my practice was worth whatever, 12 times uh, a year ago. And all I've done is perform to plan. And now it's a full turn less, uh, that's been difficult to internalize. Uh, how would you describe the that dynamic for the first half of the year? And is that 
bit ass spread narrowing kind of organically now? Yeah, great question. It's definitely narrowing, uh, but perhaps not as uh, not with the velocity that we all wish. Look, at the end of the day, this really comes down, certainly when we're considering the lens and vantage point of a private equity firm or a financial sponsor, in large part, it's a math equation and it's a risk underwriting equation. In the go-go post-COVID 21 period, cost of capital was at all-time historical low. You could stretch, given that you know your overall weighted average cost of capital was relatively low, it still allowed for a lot of room and margin for error. And you were underwriting the risk-weighted probability of growth vis-a-vis uh, -vis those heightened valuation multiples and ultimate deal terms, right? When the cost of capital goes up 500 basis points in a relatively short period of time, it's very difficult to let alone you know, attain the financing, but be able to gain comfort in underwriting a growth trajectory and plan that may or may not come to realization within the forecasted period. So that is the new normal, right? But what I would say is this is where creativity and no, you know, it's a commercial, so bear with us, but this is where having really good seasoned advisors that have been in these types of markets really pays dividends because one thing we're seeing is the return of the structured deal. You know, we recently advised on a, on a great outcome for our client whereby the management team and leadership team and owners of the enterprise felt compelled um, that they would realize relatively outsized growth trajectories and performance. The buyer wasn't necessarily willing to underwrite and pay full price upfront for that growth, given all the dynamics we've just unpacked here. But what they said was, look, let's put earnouts into the composition of the enterprise value of the deal. Let's use a seller note and let's use a bit more rollover equity because if you have so much faith and conviction in the realization of that growth, then you should be willing and able to align vis-a-vis -vis more rollover equity versus less. So I think the era of the structured deal is gonna be here for a while. It'll probably become more relevant and prevalent this year and beyond, but there are ways to align outcomes find the math equation result that everyone strives for and get good deals done. It just takes a little bit more work in this market. And just to add to that, Jeff, what I would say is we had to have some time to reset, right? We came before COVID, as we all on, on the podcast remember, we were at all-time high-level valuations. It was a great market before COVID. COVID shut things down temporarily for, you know, about nine months in terms of material M&A being done. And when we reopened, we still had very inexpensive cost of debt, right? The lowest in history. But we had nine months of M&A to make up for. And what that happened was it pushed buyer dynamics and behavior into a, an area and an experience like we've never seen before. It was a, I typically call it the feeding frenzy effect, where it pushed valuations well beyond what we've ever seen historically. And a lot of our physician clients and relationships have anchored to those valuations. We were saying during that time, and we'll continue to say it, those valuations were temporary. They were not sustainable at those levels. And we've now fallen back a couple of turns of, of EBITDA multiple, but we're back where we were pre-COVID, which was the prior peak. So it's still a very good market from a seller's perspective. 
you know, versus five years ago or 10 years ago. So while maybe the outsized once in a lifetime valuation is not readily available, it's still a very robust market and an attractive one from a seller's perspective. Let's talk a little bit about physician practice consolidation, where all three of us spend a ton of time. There's certainly right now a sensation of headwinds from a number of sources. You have these valuation challenges that you were just talking about. You also have labor pressures on compensation in an environment where increasing labor cost isn't quickly met with increasing reimbursement from, say, the federal government, which puts a lot of pressure on. How would you describe the overall kind of physician practice consolidation market? And as that has been strained for the last six, nine months, uh, how do you see that evolving in the next six to 18? Yeah, great question. And probably one of the most questions we feel most consistently, perhaps. But look, I, I think it's also a tale of two worlds. The organizations that took it upon themselves to consolidate and aggregate for the sake of consolidation without a real true focus on operational efficiency, clinical and financial integration and and building these provider-based businesses in the right way. We're starting to see the beginnings of what will be perhaps a prolonged cycle where those organizations, whether they're PE-backed or not, are going to be severely challenged from a liquidity, from an access to incremental capital, and from an ability to to really grow over the coming years. You know, we're seeing a lot of situations that we're being called in where it's a great business, world-class clinical enterprise, agnostic of whatever specialty or setting of care they're in, but really bad balance sheet, right? And either already in technical default with their lenders or on a glide path towards that, or unfortunately have already been turned over to the lenders. And the lenders are asking us, what are our options with this asset in the current market environment and what should we do, right? The differentiator there is there's a lot of organizations that did things the right way. And it was a little bit slower and less sexy than pumping out 28, 30 M&A transactions to grow EBITDA inorganically. But those are the ones that are actually taking advantage of the current market environment because they're not beholden to a growth strategy that's 90% oriented towards M&A. They can grow inorganically. They can go grow on a de novo basis and have the ability to maintain streamlined operations and, and financial performance. The thing I would add to that is, and also uh, half commercial from our perspective, is that I have a an enormous and increasing number of conversations with buyers where we're really trying to creatively think through and address provider alignment. Because to your point, if you're just pushing together pieces that aren't integrated, you're going to have trouble. You're also going to have trouble if you've not really thought through how is physician alignment going to work through kind of more complex and nuanced compensation arrangements, more complex and nuanced equity arrangements. Because if you're not able to kind of thread some of those needles, you're going to be really challenged with retention of providers and growth uh, where you're not uh, driving growth by kind of dropping a, a big check in a group provider's pocket in an acquisition context when you're needing to drive the alignment through kind of the operational resources you have on a year-by-year basis. If you're able to thread that needle, then you can really build a big organization. If not, you're going to face headwinds. That's a great point. The one 
thing that I'd say from a industry dynamic perspective that you know we're seeing right now that probably is different than what we've seen for the last eight to ten years is while or a big reason why the M and A volume is down in general, it's not just down at the platform level, meaning recapitalization of PE back platforms, that volume is definitely down. But the add-ons are down as well, right? So we saw in 2021 and 2022 record volume of consolidation. And when you're going through 25, 30, 50, 100 single site or group acquisitions, you need to give your organization time to integrate, to drive you know, performance improvement and systematize the operational elements of the business that are the fundamental core of creating value through a consolidator PPM platform to begin with. So while it hurts advisors in our pockets a little bit because there's less volume, it's actually better for the industry because I think in many respects, there was an overabundance of M&A that happened in 21 and 22. And it gives these groups now the opportunity to digest all of the M&A that they did and integrate those businesses the right way so that in the next two years, three years, four years, when those platforms come to market, they're that much stronger, they're that much more attractive to the next set of investors. Let's maybe uh, pivot the conversation towards some more detailed sector discussions. So within the kind of broad provider arena, We've talked some about uh, the some of the challenges around kind of physician consolidation through acquisition, which we're all feeling some of those uh, headwinds. What sectors have been active and really moving forward from your perspective? Yeah, there have been pockets of hyperactivity, regardless of the kind of more broader macro picture within healthcare specifically. But I would say orthopedics has been and remains extremely, extremely active. Um, what we're fascinated by, look, financial sponsor consolidation of physician group specialties is, is nothing new. There are over 100 plus uh, dental services organizations, right, that are out there being consolidated and consolidating. What really surprised us in, in orthopedics and musculoskeletal care is the velocity with which upwards of 20 private equity backed, sponsor backed organizations have been formed in really a 24 month period two-year period and, and growing. It seems like every three to four weeks, there's a new one being formed. And it's probably one of the areas that we, we're spending the most time as a firm and practice here in the U.S. within healthcare. I would highlight cardiology, also very, very active, not as active and, and, and not as much volume as we've seen in, in orthopedics. And then lastly, this one's probably the newest and probably the flavor of the month and perhaps the rest of the year is is all things medical spas and aesthetic medicine. Just a re renewed but very strong and persistent interest in, in that category as well. Rich, I don't know if you wanna add or uh, anything else that you had from your side. The fundamental investment thesis in physician practice management has been proven out for 30 years. We're now deploying that into some of the newer areas that haven't been consolidated yet that Hector mentioned, like cardiology and, and urology and GI are, are relatively newer to attract private equity investments. And on the med spa topic, I would say there is a heightened level of interest, particularly in that space, 
because the industry tailwinds are very attractive. It's an industry that's growing double digit right now. The patient total addressable market continues to expand with younger generation utilizing those uh, products and services, male patients and consumers using those products and services. But a big driver actually behind the interest from investors in MedSpa goes down to reimbursement and pricing. So we're talking about products and services that are not reimbursed by commercial or government insurance uh, programs. So this is a, an out-of-pocket spend by the consumers. And when you have cash-paying patients, it allows the providers an opportunity to drive uh, price increases in an inflationary environment the way that a lot of the other medical specialties like radiology or, or dental or, or cardiology they're beholden to the payers and the rates that they negotiate with them in terms of getting reimbursement. And they don't have the ability to combat inflation the way that sectors like MedSpa do, which is part of the reason why uh, there's so much excitement and activity in sectors like that. Yeah. And I think each of those sectors has kind of a, a catalyst that has made it kind of rise to the top, like for take orthopedic, which which I would kind of lump in urology, GI. To me, the catalyst is that when you get a scale in a market, it opens up some potential that hadn't really been there before. And I'm thinking specifically of the ability to joint venture with health systems or kind of national ASC uh, management companies to joint venture around ASCs in ways that A, without the scale, you couldn't do. And B, the the hospitals and those national management companies were historically not super interested in partnering with bigger platforms, but now they are. And that kind of opens things up in ways that has really made them attractive and then the, the, another dynamic, as you talk about orthopedic, is I would put it in the kind of subset of provider services uh, arenas where if you get some scale, it opens up the potential to do value-based contracting. And or- orthopedic is a, is a good example where, I mean, with Medicare, hip and knee replacements are all kind of bundled payment treatment uh, already. But if you get a little bit of scale, you can expand those value-based contracting into other areas, especially with commercial payers. And that's a transformative dynamic that has made some of those sectors really interesting. And then on the cardiology, the catalyst from kind of where I sit is like changes in the law of uh, site of uh, location of where you can do procedures, moving that first out of the hospital into an ASC setting and then for certain things uh, out of the AS out of the ASC into some sort of office setting, that has opened up uh, uh, revenue streams in those practices that have made them super attractive. So there's often a catalyst that that moves those sectors. Agreed, 100. percent And I think in orthopedics, agree with everything you articulated. But even the old school industrial logic that attracted PE to physician practice management of large and growing addressable patient population. Well, I mean, you, you could argue 100% of the U.S. patient population of people in the United States will at some point have some orthopedic care need, right? Whether it's a broken bone when you're a kid or your, your spine degenerates naturally as you age, at some point you're going to need interventional care for that 
for that treatment pathway. Then you juxtapose it with the supply and demand imbalance of available providers relative to the patient population and the demand for orthopedic care. It's a great place to be, but then it really overlays all those elements you mentioned. Every high volume, high margin surgical case is migrating out of the acute care setting and into the ASC setting. And when you partner with entrepreneurial physicians and orthopedic surgeons that say, hey, we've stood up one ASC, but we have the capacity to stand up three or four, a partnership with a private equity firm can help catalyze and realize that in record time, right? And then ultimately, to your point, getting to the promised land of now you're, you've created the full continuum of orthopedic services and care, you have real true financial and clinical integration, and you have full alignment of provider you know, goals and objectives, you can really start to enter into risk-bearing arrangements and, and ultimately move to, to a value-based care model, which we've already seen one financial sponsor-backed organization really take the flag and the helm of that strategy. So we think that trend and that evolution is, is going to continue to evolve and, and will provide for more transactional activity. Yeah. To kind of bring us to close here, uh, it's been a, a challenging six, nine months and there's still headwinds uh, facing a lot of these sectors, but there's also a lot of tailwinds, uh, the underlying dynamics of consolidation and value-based medicine and movement towards lower location, lower cost locations of care are continuing to drive this market. And a lot of these private equity backed platforms, they're built to be able to take a pause for a while while you kind of consolidate what you've purchased, but they're really not built to not be active for very long. And the, just the buildup of platforms held by private equity funds for a increasingly long period of time, they're not built to do that forever either. And so the transaction flow uh, for the next six to 18 months is feeling like it's going to be good and everything's going to be just okay. There's a lot of forward-looking optimism is, is how I would characterize it. The money isn't going to spend itself, Jeff. So the private, our private equity friends need to deploy capital they need to invest in quality businesses. And, and to your and Hector's points earlier, the healthcare landscape is continuing to evolve and it does at a rapid clip. And it often requires significant amount of investment, both money and resources and expertise to be able to build organizations and deliver better care. And with that as the goal, it's in everyone's interest to always put patient first and think about what the outcome is in helping our clinicians to better deliver care in a more flexible environment with the support of the administrative and support services of the platforms. Thank you guys for uh, joining me. Uh, this has been super, super informative and a ton of fun. And uh, we'll have to have uh, you guys back sometime soon. Thanks, Jeff. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this installment of The Capital Corner. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host Jeff Cockrell at gcockrell at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you.
This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.